You know, when I, I hear a testimony like Joy's, uh, sometimes I think, let's just sing a couple songs and go home, right? <laughs> wow, that was really special. Uh, when I was uh, actually around Joy's age, I, I, I loved to take things apart. You know, I loved to find a piece of equipment or machinery or whatever, and a, uh, even a toy, anything, and just, just tear the thing apart. So much fun tearing it apart. And I was actually really good at tearing things apart. I, I wasn't quite as good at putting them back together after I had dismantled everything. And so what normally happened is I would gather all the parts, I'd put them in a box, and I would go in search of my father to fix what I had dismantled. And I thought, you know, that's really a good analogy for our lives. Frequently it feels like it's, it's in pieces, and we don't know how to put the pieces back together. Sometimes our lives are in pieces because of what others have done to us. When you come from a, a family of, of di- divorce or neglect or abuse, uh, sometimes our lives are in pieces because of choices that we have made ourselves, consequences that we brought on ourselves. And what we normally do is we try to figure out every way other than God to put the pieces back together for ourselves, or we try to find a way to escape the pain of feeling life, like life uh, is in pieces. Uh, several years ago, I found a, a quote by a man named Ralph Barton. He was a, a political cartoonist, and he wrote this note shortly before he took his own life. He said, I have had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I've gone from wife to wife, from house to house visited great countries of the world, but I am fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. I just can't put the pieces back together. And so I've tried to avoid the pain, but I just can't find anything that actually fills that that void inside of me. Blaise Pascal famously said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every human's heart that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God through his son, Jesus Christ. There's a God-shaped vacuum inside of the heart of absolutely every man, woman, and child. And it can only be filled by Jesus Christ. No created thing can fill that void. God can take the pieces of your life and God can put them back together. In fact, only God can put them back together. And the great hope that we have is that God specializes in putting those pieces back together. Right? This morning we're going to continue our study of Jacob, a man whose life was in pieces. Jacob was a mess. Jacob was, uh, really was a project for God. Remember, his name meant literally one who grasps the heel. He's a, he was a supplanter, a deceiver, a schemer. That was his name, and that was his character. Recall that he was a twin. though He had a twin brother, but the, the boys were not anything alike. Jacob was the younger by minutes. Esau came out first, but as a result, even though it was just minutes earlier, Esau, by convention, by legal right, was uh, the firstborn. He had the right of birthright, the right of the firstborn son. Not only that, he had the love of his father, and Jacob did not. Isaac had made that clear. Isaac loved Esau, but he, he didn't love Jacob. And so Jacob had this huge hole in his heart. Jacob's life was, was in pieces. And so he was constantly scheming and grasping to try and put the pieces back together on his own. Tricked his brother into getting uh, the birthright, and later he deceived his father into getting the blessing. He made his brother so mad, in fact, that his brother decided that once dad dies, I'll kill him. <laughs> That's how I'll solve the problem. I'll get the birthright back, I'll get the blessing back, and I don't need a brother. I'll just kill him. And so their mom heard about this, and she actually favored Jacob, and so she said, Jacob, you need to get out of here. 
so your brother doesn't kill you. And, and hopefully in time, his anger will subside. And when it does, I'll call you. You can come back and be part of the family again. And so Jacob left. As he was leaving, his mother and his father both said, find a wife, would you please? And not, not a wife like your brother has. They're just driving us crazy. They're making life miserable for us. So go back to your mom's people and find a wife. And so as he traveled back to Haran, he discovered the dream girl, the, the girl he'd, he'd always hoped he would find, this beautiful beautiful woman named Rachel. He's infatuated by her, so much so that he agreed with her father that he would work seven years so that she could be his wife. Seven years. Seven years were complete, and he said, it's time. I I want my wife. Give me my wife. And so his father-in-law laid him through a big party, huge party. They partied all day long, partied deep into the night. In the middle of the night, he sent his daughter in, but he didn't send in Rachel. Remember, he sent in Leah. So in the darkness with the woman veiled, he didn't know that he had not received Rachel that he'd worked for seven years. Instead, he was receiving Leah, but he didn't want Leah. Leah wasn't the one he'd worked for seven years, and she wasn't pretty like her sister. She wasn't the one he wanted. He made that clear to her as well. Came out and made it clear to his his father-in-law. He said, what have you done to me? His father-in-law said, remember, we, we don't put the younger ahead of the firstborn in our family. So seven more years, and you can have Rachel too. So he finished the honeymoon for seven days. He got Rachel, and then he worked seven more years, and now he has two wives. Actually, by the end of 14 years, he had four wives, right? Four wives, lots of children, and he had no money. He had no way to feed them, right? No wealth. Just four wives and lots of kids. So he agrees with Laban to work another six years to gain some wealth. 20 years, 20 years he worked for Laban. And finally, he is free of Laban. And God says to him, go home. Go back to Canaan. I want you to read with me chapter 31 and verse 3. It says, The Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Now, on the one hand, that had to seem like a really great message to receive from God, right? Okay, finally, I'm going back to the promised land, to the birthright and the blessing that I have stolen, but it is mine, right? I get to go home, and I get to get away from Laban. His last words with Laban had been, hey, here's the line in the sand. I won't cross it to do you harm. You don't cross it to do me harm. But if you cross it, we're going to assume that one another's doing the other harm and it's going to be war. Don't come back. So finally, he's, he's rid of Laban. But if he's rid of Laban, that means he's got to go back and see Esau. Right? And he probably could have avoided Esau for a while because Esau lived way in the south and Jacob was coming in through the north. But eventually he would have to face Esau. So he's really trapped. He can't go back to Laban. He is afraid to move forward to see Esau. And there he is, in a sense, really between a rock and a hard place. I want you to turn to chapter 32 and read with me in verse 3. It says, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming out to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to to one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. He says, what am I going to do? I don't have an army. But here's Esau. The last we spoke, he wanted to kill me. 
And now when I've told him I'm returning back into the land, what does Esau do? Well, he gathers basically an ancient Near Eastern militia. 400 men was a standard size, small, private army. And Jacob doesn't have an army. He doesn't have 400 men to fight his battles with him. And so he does all that he can think to do. He divides his his wealth, his his family, his flocks, his herds into two companies because he figures, well, if he attacks one, the other will escape. I can at least cut my losses and maybe everyone and everything won't die. He's afraid. And rightly so. But he does another thing. He prays. This is the first time that Jacob has sought out God. God has come after Jacob, but now Jacob seeks out God. Read with me in verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, O Yahweh, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers and the children. You said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Now that prayer sounds very different, doesn't it, than his previous prayer? I don't want you to turn back to chapter 28 and notice how different it sounds. Chapter 28, verse 20. God appeared to him on uh, the stairwell, the stairway that was moving up and back. He saw a vision of the, the glory and the greatness of God. Verse 20, it says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and if he will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and if I return to my father's house in safety, then, then the Lord will be my God. Yeah, that's, that prayer sounds very different, doesn't it, than the one that you see later in chapter 32? In chapter 32, there are no conditions He just says, God, this is what you spoke. This is your promise. God, I'm counting on you to fulfill your promise. Now, he says, God, I I, I humble myself before you. I am unworthy of all of your loyal love with your faithfulness. All that I have, Father, is a gift from you. And so, God, I pray, deliver me because I cannot deliver myself. I have no army. I have no strength. God, deliver me. This is a man who is is broken, who is learning and growing who's following God's command to return back to the promised land, even though it is a fearful thing that may cost him his life, he's a man who's walking in obedience. And he comes up with a plan, right? Because remember, praying and planning are not antithetical. He, he creates a plan. And in his plan, what he, he thinks is, he says, well, maybe I can appease my brother, right? I will send him a gift. Read with me again, chapter 32 and verse 13. So so he spent the night there, then he selected from what he had with a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And if you say to yourself, wow, that's a lot, you're right. That that was a a gift that might be given to a king. It's extravagant. And what he does is he divides up this gift into three parts. He says, now put a space between you. Send the first part of the gift. And Esau will say, wow, that's a lot. And then maybe an hour or two later, another huge gift will come and say, this is amazing. And then a third gift. And maybe by sending these, these three gifts, all of which are extravagant 
in and of themselves, in total, they're amazing. Maybe that will appease his anger and he will not kill me. So he makes a plan. It's a wise plan. It's a good plan. The point is he's praying, he's planning, he's walking in wisdom and in humility before God. And when somebody is obeying God, what do we expect God to do for that person? What do you expect? If you're walking in obedience, what do you expect that God will do for you? Bless you, right? Right? That's how it works, right? I prayed, check, a plan in wisdom. I, I sought advice. I read the word. Now it's time for God to come through and bless, right? That's, what, that's God's obligation because I obeyed. He, now he, he reciprocates and blesses, right? That's how it works. No, God, God jumps him, right? Uh, God ambushes him. Really remarkable, strange story. Rather than immediately receiving blessing, God ambushes Jacob. Read with me chapter 32 and verse 22. It says, Now he rose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across all that he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Who, who is this man? Who is this man that comes out of the dark? Jacob has no idea. All he knows is he's trying to go to sleep and all of a sudden a guy jumps on him. Now we know that this is God in human flesh. Okay, we know that. The angel of the Lord, maybe the pre-incarnate son of God. We're not exactly sure. We just know that this is God in the form of man. Later on, Jacob will name the place Penuel, which means the face of God. He'll say, I was face to face with God. I saw the face of God. In, in all of his greatness and glory, no. But I saw God in human form. He'll acknowledge that later, but right now, what does he know? He just knows some dude jumped me in the middle of the night and started fighting with me, and Jacob has to, has to fight back for, for fear of his, his life. Now, what's interesting is, this is, this is just like when God found him previously, right? He comes to Jacob when Jacob is completely and utterly alone. His wives, his children, his servants have all gone ahead. All of his wealth has gone ahead. He put them on the other side of the stream, and Jacob is utterly, completely all alone. He has nothing. He's out in the wilderness again. Uh, we're told he is actually near the Jabbok River. Again, to help you visualize this a little bit, um, it's not like being in a gym, Right? It's, it's, not, it's not air conditioning. There's no wrestling mat that's soft to roll around on. God jumps him. He, he's, he's laying on the dirt. It's rocky. It's dusty. It's dirty. And it says for hours, they wrestle and roll around. Jacob is, he is bruised. He is bloody. He is sweaty. He's just, he's an absolute mess. They have wrestled all night long. He's utterly and completely exhausted. In the dark, they've been wrestling. What is going on? Hey, and, and the darkness is real, it's literal, but it is also figurative. Jacob doesn't know what is happening or why it's happening. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is going on? Why does God assault Jacob in the dark in the middle of the night? I want you to read with me again chapter 32 and verse 24. It says, then Jacob was left alone, all alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Okay, literally it says uh, the man Jacobed him. Okay? Jacob was left alone and a man Jacobed with him until daybreak. What's his name mean? 
to one who grasps, who strives, who wrestles, who battles, who com- who's a combatant. The verb used here sounds exactly like his name. The man Jacob with Jacob all night long. That's been his whole life, right? It's his name, it's his character, it's his entire life. What does Jacob do? Jacob wrestles, Jacob fights, Jacob grasps. If you ask Jacob, Jacob, why do you wrestle? Why are, why are you always fighting? What's up with you? Jacob probably would have said, it's, it's my brother. Right? It's my brother's fault. He was born first and he had everything and I needed it and so I had to get it. It was my father. My father loved my brother and didn't love me. It was Laban. Laban took from me and didn't give me my fair wages. It's, it's Esau, it's Isaac, it's Laban, it's all of them. If you'd ask God, God, who's Jacob wrestling? I think God would have said he's actually wrestling me. Okay, this whole time, his whole life, Jacob has been trying to wrestle out of other people what only I can give him. So God shows up in the middle of the night and he says, you want to wrestle somebody? Wrestle me. Because what you're searching for, really, ultimately, Jacob, I'm the only one that can give to you. I love this quote from Augustine. It says, you have made us restless until we find our rest in you. Or in the context of our story here, you've made us wrestle until we wrestle it out with you, God. Because ultimately, you're the only one who can give us what we need. You're the only one who can put the pieces of life back together. You're the only one who can fill that hole that we feel, maybe that other, others caused in our life, or maybe that we caused to ourselves. God, we've got to wrestle it out with you. You are the only one. Verse 25. When the man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. You know, Jacob actually starts really strong. He's doing well all night long. He's holding his own. Remember, he's a strong man. He's the guy who picked up the stone off of the well, right, and moved it off. I mean, he wasn't the outdoorsman that Esau was, but he wasn't a wimp either. So all night long, he's going, he's wrestling. He starts out really well, and then, and then the, the wrestling match turns quickly, and he, he has a dislocated hip. <laughs> Can you imagine how excruciating that was? You know, it's impossible to wrestle on one leg. All, all of your strength and all of your balance in wrestling comes right, right here, really in all of athletics. It's, it's right here. This is where strength and balance comes from. I knew a, a wrestling coach, actually, a real small guy, and he would wrestle uh, all of his, his, uh, his players, his wrestlers. He, he would train them by wrestling without his hands. Right? All he would use was his legs. He was, had just incredible balance and strength in his, in his thighs and his hips. He would use his legs and his chin. He could pin all of his wrestlers with his chin. Right? I saw a video of, of a, a young man who actually run, won his state title with one arm. He only had one arm, but he had such great strength and balance right here. That's how you wrestle. Now Jacob has one leg. He can't wrestle anymore. In fact, Jacob will never be the same again after a dislocated hip. You know, as I was thinking about this story this week, I thought, you know, it just seems to me, I'm, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but it seems like that's a really strong joint. It seems like it'd be difficult to dislocate that. So I, uh, I emailed my good friend Gary McCord, who teaches anatomy and physiology for Texas A&M. I thought, you know, this is an authority I can trust. And Gary wrote me back. He said, yeah, in fact, this is the, the most stable joint in your entire body. So you hear about Shoulders being dislocated and torn and and even elbows, wrists, certainly knees and ankles. But you don't hear a lot about dislocated hips. As we grow older, there's osteoporosis and the joint wears out 
you know, but, but that joint itself is incredibly strong because it's a ball and socket joint and the ball goes all the way up into the socket and then it's wrapped with muscles and ligaments. It is an incredibly stable joint, the most difficult joint to dislocate. And what happens here? This man, who is God in human flesh, just touches it. Pow! Just like that. And I think at this moment, Jacob realizes, maybe this isn't just a man. Maybe there's something else going on in this wrestling match. Maybe he was letting me think that I was winning or keeping up when he can just reach over and that, that strongest, most stable joint, he just touches it and all of a sudden I'm in horrible pain and I can't stand on that leg. My, my leg has been dislocated. Jacob figures something else must be going on. C.S. Lewis once said, Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. God is shouting to Jacob. Verse 26. Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You know, my kids were, were little, we would wrestle. And I would let them get on top of me and I'd let them feel like, like they were winning. And sometimes they would get on top of me and get in such a position that actually I couldn't move without hurting them really, really bad. And they'd say, okay, you know, we win, we win. And I'd have to say, okay, you win, crawl off. Because, I, I mean, I could have. I could have just stood up and gone, dad, strong, right? right? But then I pay the hospital bills, right? It's, Psh, little bodies fly and break and shatter, right? And I, I had to, no, okay, I'll, okay. I will let you win. But that's what's going on here. God is holding back. Because he doesn't want to destroy Jacob, but he does need to humble Jacob. And so what happens here is, is Jacob stops Jacobing, he stops wrestling, and he just starts clinging. He realizes, I can't win this, but I'm not letting go. Because this one is so strong, surely this one can bless me. But God has to humble Jacob, not destroy him, but humble him so that he can bless him. And that is what God does for him. Verse 27. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Remember who this is. Who are we talking about? Who's the man? It's God in human form. Does God not know his name? He knows his name. So why does he ask? This is confession time. It says, Jacob, I need you to say your name. Say your name, Jacob. Say it. And Jacob says, I am deceiver. I'm wrestler. I'm grasper. I'm the one who's tried to manage all of life, control all of life, get what I want. I, I am Jacob. God doesn't ask because he needs the information. He needs Jacob to acknowledge. Jacob says, I'm Jacob. I'm deceiver. And God says, that's enough. Let's move on. Because I want to give you a new name. Okay? It's a different name. You're not going to be Jacob any longer. Verse 28. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you've wrestled with men, you've wrestled with God, and you have prevailed. Your name shall no longer be Jacob. That's a Hebrew idiomatic expression. It is literally, it shall no longer be said of you, Jacob. So when people think of you, they won't think Jacob any longer. They won't say Jacob any longer. This is a Hebrew expression for transformation. 
because the name is the character. It's who the person is. And God says, you will no longer be known as Jacob. Instead, you're going to be known as Israel. What does Israel mean? It means God fights or God rules. Jacob, your whole life you've been fighting and grasping and wrestling to get from others and from life and from your circumstances what only I can give. Now, you are the one for whom God fights. You're the one under whom God rules. God is in charge of your life now. God is fighting for you. In the immediate circumstances, you're you're hobbled. You You can't fight. You couldn't face Esau on your own anyway. You don't have an army. Now you can barely stand. And as you go and face him, I am the God who fights for you. This is how you will be known. Introduce yourself in this way now. Israel, God fights for him. God has his back. He lives under the rule and protection of God. He is a, he's a new man. He is now Israel. This is what God does, right? God renames us. It can be addict, anorexic, gossip, unfaithful, unloving. It could be any of these things that, that you've done or with which you've been labeled by others. And God says, no, Israel, God fights for you. You belong to God. You live under the rule of God. This is what God does. And really, this is what only God can do. You can struggle to try and rename yourself, but only God is the one who has the power to, to rename you, to transform you. And he loves to do it. But this is what he specializes in. He takes the, the parts, the box of parts, the broken life. He says, let me show off my honor, my glory, my power by putting it back together for you. Stop struggling. And let me do it for you. Uh, right now, uh, my son and I are m- memorizing this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. It's a beautiful verse. And... Uh, it was the first verse in our little, our little packet of uh, topical memory system. He was so excited. He goes, Dad, I just read it a little in the morning, a little at night. Man, I'm already learning it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. All things are new in Christ. And only God can do that. Jacob's a new man. How do we know? Well, he, he marches off and he interacts. Uh, he meets his brother, Esau. And it's really, it's a stunning interaction. It's a really beautiful reconciliation. But in particular, Jacob's posture as he moves back is remarkable. I want you to read with me in chapter 33, verse 1. It says, Then Jacob lifted up his eyes, and he looked. And behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. But then notice this, but he himself passed on ahead of them and he bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Previously, Jacob had put others uh, out in front. He he had used others to to protect him, to get what he wanted. And now where do you see Jacob? He divides everyone up and then he says, I'll go first. He says, I'll go first. And he bows to the ground seven times. He humbles himself before his brother. He says, I'm your servant. He doesn't come in uh, making excuses or making demands. He doesn't say, you know, God actually prophesied that I would get the birthright and the blessing. And so really it was legitimate for me to trick you and trick you at dad. He doesn't, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't make demands. He doesn't say, look, this is actually my land. You gave it up. It's my land. 
He just comes humbly, bows himself seven times. He, 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 he brings a gift. He brings an offering, an extravagant offering. And even when Esau says, no, no, it, I don't need that. I don't want it. And Esau falls on his neck and kisses him. And there's clearly reconciliation. He insists. He says, no, let me now be one who blesses, right? Rather than one who constantly takes, now let me be the one who passes on blessing. I'm not a grasper any longer. I'm a giver. Why? Because God has changed me. God has transformed me. Men and women, God is, is chasing you. He's pursuing you. Because that, that's what God does. He wants to take all of the broken pieces of life and put it back together for you because you can't. Maybe this morning he's chasing you down and you feel like it, it's the first time you're finally seeing and you're understanding. You're saying, God, I, I believe. Please put these broken pieces back together that I, I've tried, but I can't. God, thank you for sending Jesus who is the great healer. I believe that he died for my sins and my brokenness. I accept Maybe this morning for the first time you need to acknowledge the God who is chasing you down and believe in him. Maybe you've believed in him for a long time, but things are not in order in your life. But you've been working to put them in order yourself and God is saying, I need you to just give in. I don't want to touch your hip, but I will. I need you to acknowledge that only I can bless you. I need you to give in. Let me be the, the very center of your life, the, the meaning of your life. All other things only make sense when I'm the center. Let me be the center. As we close this, Tim is going to lead us in a worship song. I'd like you just to think for a moment as, as you listen to the words uh, about what God may be calling you to. And maybe you've been the one who's grasping, controlling, reaching to put things in order. And God's saying, just, just let go and let, let me be the center. Father, I pray that you would teach us to stop wrestling, to stop grasping, to give in. Let you be the very center of our lives. All that we have is Christ. Father, only you can bless. Only you can make our lives full, satisfying, and rich. There's nothing in this world that can fill us. Father, teach us not to chase after foolish things, but instead to give in to you. It's in Christ's powerful, precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you this week.